Listen to this portion of God's word. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you will call to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge, the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Ross Queener, and I'm an elder here at Trinity Baptist. I'm going to set my water down right there. You didn't want to know that, but you do. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, providing this sermon today. Uh, and this is the first portion of the fourth chapter of Ephesians, right? We're working our way through Ephesians. And, uh, and so I'm just going to have three uh, quick points to hit as I do that. But before I um, move into talking about uh, about this chapter of the book, I want to provide a little context. And the context comes in the form of talking about a man who's uh, sitting in prison, and he's unjustly um, been put there. And so he, he decides he needs to write a letter to, uh, to let people know that what they see right now isn't the world that ought to be. There's so much, so much more than what they're seeing. And, of course, I'm speaking about uh, Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., right, in his letter from a Birmingham jail. And uh, in this letter, among other things, Dr. King makes note of the importance of identity. And so I'm going to read a short excerpt from this letter. <clears throat> when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun World is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority 
beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you go forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Dr. King knew that if people viewed themselves as being less than they are, that if, if they were treated that way and understood themselves to be less than who they are, that it would affect the way that they lived. It, it would affect the way that they moved out into the world. And so he felt a need to address that, among many other things in this letter. About 1,900 years before that, there was another man imprisoned uh, who felt compelled to write a letter to the people that he knew to help them see a greater reality. And so that was the Apostle Paul. And so um, as, as he's putting this letter together, you can tell that he understands identity to be critical to, to this early church, these new Christians. He wanted to make sure they understood clearly what it meant to be a child of God, what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And so he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians really talking about just that, about our identity in Christ, who we are. And so he, he says things like this. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. We're adopted as children through Jesus Christ. When we believed, we were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We have access to the Father. These things were absolutely mind-blowing. And so he's, he's, he's creating a vision of an identity that is unparalleled. It's astonishing. And at the same time, he wants to make sure that his readers know that it's completely undeserved. And so he makes statements such as, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And it is by grace we've been saved through faith, not as a result of our good works. And so he's painting this picture where on the one hand we see that we're profoundly blessed, and on the other hand we understand that we are utterly undeserving of these blessings. And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. As you read the words, you can see the apostle kneeling in his cell, thanking God, celebrating, Lord, you're so good to us, we deserve none of it. Your Holy Spirit at work in us. If we truly soak in, what Paul's telling us in those first three chapters, we'll join him on our knees. We'll celebrate that too because it's astonishing. The Son of God died for us while we were God's enemies. And then he clothed us in his righteousness. And more than that, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Right? If, we'd, if we had more coffee this morning, we'd say hallelujah. Isn't that great? 
All right. And so um, chapter 4 marks a shift in the book of the Ephesians. Paul has, has set a picture for us of our identity, and now he's going to move on to talk about what it means for a saint of God to live in a dirty world. Right? We are called to be salt and light. Uh, we are called to be in the world but not of the world. But how does that work out? And so, you know, the first three chapters of Ephesians, I think there was all of one command in those first three chapters. But in these next three chapters, there's over 40. Uh, if, if you don't consider the context of the first three chapters, it could look like a to-do list. Oh, man, when I signed up for Jesus, he gave me homework. This is terrible, right? Uh, but it's not the case. Our identity is important in this conversation. And so Paul is going to, to talk to us about what it means to be these children of God in this world. And so uh, that brings us to his first imperative, his first command. The first thing that he tells us to do uh, is to live in a manner worthy of our calling. That's utterly ridiculous. I mean, Paul, did you just read what you wrote a few chapters before, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm? And you want me to live in a manner worthy of that? That's ludicrous, except that the Holy Spirit of God is in us, and he empowers us for this very thing. Right? Remember uh, at the end of chapter 3, uh, Paul said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Right? His Holy Spirit who's at work within us. If we're, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're really walking with Christ, then we're enabled to do this. And if you've given your life to Christ, God has placed his Holy Spirit in you. Right? Every person that's a believer has, has the Holy Spirit. And so what kind of life is this that Paul's talking to us about? Well, he gives us a, a brief but potent picture of that in verse 2. And he starts out by saying that we should live with humility. Now, to the Greek people that were reading this letter, humility was kind of a dirty word, right? Their, their mental picture of the good life, of living well, meant that you really had it going on because you deserved it. You know, quite frankly, the home that I live in, well, it's because I'm such a great guy, right? And so humility didn't really, uh, they didn't really consider it to be something that they would aspire to. Uh, but, but as Paul writes to these believers and he talks about humility, right, there's that backdrop of this, this identity that we have that's so incredibly rich and yet so entirely undeserved. And so humility is the first mark. The second is the idea of being completely gentle, and the Greek word that's used here is a word that would be used of describing an animal that's really well-trained, right? And so consider you go to somebody's apartment, you knock on the door, knock, 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 and a dog starts barking, big dog, woo, woo, woo. and then you hear the person inside say, sit, quiet. And they open the door, and here's the dog, big dog, and he's sitting quietly, Right? His master's voice means more to him than his own impulses. And that's the picture that Paul is, is painting for us when he talks about us being completely gentle, that we'll be restrained in how we behave, that we'll be more concerned with, with what the Lord is calling us to than our own impulses. And then he talks about being patient and bearing with one another. 
Uh, you know, if you've been in church for more than 10 minutes, you've probably been annoyed, offended, or hurt by somebody. Hopefully not all three in 10 minutes, right? That would be a bad day, I think. Um, but this stuff happens. This place is full of people. And people, uh, they can be annoying, right? And so this idea of being patient and bearing with one another is the idea that, yeah, that stuff's going to happen, but we're not going to bail. You know, we're still going to choose to to love the people around us. We're not going to try to retaliate or escape. Uh, now, again, this type of response, it's not natural to me. I don't think it's natural to any of us, right? We, we need God's supernatural power to live this out. And so... So how does that work out? How does the Holy Spirit empower us to be humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another? Well, uh, you know, a, uh, an example that comes to mind for me comes from my own life. And, uh, you know, I'm going to share from my life in my home. My wife and I, Cindy, you know, every once in a while, believe it or not, we have a fight. We will yell at each other. It's unbelievable. Uh, sometimes it's over super important stuff like bacon. It happened once. And so, uh, you know, in the midst of this, here we are, rah, 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 and I can tell you, I know for a fact that I'm right. It is absolutely, undeniably a fact that I'm right, and it's her fault, 100%. Uh, she acts as if she believes the same about me. I don't know how that can be. And so here we go, we're going at it, and it gets to a point where I just know that um, this, this is not getting any better. It seems to be devolving. And we did, uh, you know, before we got married, we agreed that, you know, you have a fight and you're not allowed to run away. She's not going to call her mom and, Mom, this guy, he's an idiot. And I'm not going to run out the door and, you're an idiot and rock, you know, that we're going stick to stick together. But it is good to sort of gain some space. So I'll, you know, leave the bedroom and 700 square feet, a quiet spot. It's probably the bathroom, right? Shut myself in the bathroom and, and then as I um, calm down a little bit, I'm like, I, there's just no way for me to work this out. And so I'm forced to get on my knees and pray and say, all right, Lord, um, you saw that woman. You know what she's like. And I know that I'm right, but I don't know. You know, Lord, I need you to help me love her. I need you to help me see what I can't see. I need you to, to help me listen to my wife. I just, I don't want to do it. I just, I want to win. That's what I want to do. And as I'm, as I'm praying through this, what has happened a number of times is that the Holy Spirit will come and I will experience a brokenness. And I don't know how else to describe that other than to say all of this stuff that I want for myself breaks. And so the Lord then says, all right, so tell me, what is it that you want? Yeah, I want to love my wife, Lord. I want to listen. Help me. Help me. And so I'm, I'm able then to go back into our bedroom with a sense of humility and with a sense of patience and bearing, um, you know, whatever faults she might have, not saying that she has faults, but she may have some, and, uh, and listen. And we're able to talk through it and work it out. And so and it's not that I'm a great Christian. I mean, I'm a person that needs Jesus, right? I can be a screwball sometimes. Um, <laughs> yes, it's true. And, um, and I want you to know that this idea of being filled with the Spirit, of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not like we're Jesus zombies that shuffle along and we just 
magically do what's right. Uh, my experience of being empowered by the Holy Spirit means that he breaks me of my own selfishness. And then he, he gives me a heart that's open to the will of God. In my experience, that's what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, you know, when that happens, then I'm empowered to be humble and gentle, patient, and to bear with others. And so that's, that's the first point of my three points, is that we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that is reflective of our identity in Christ, to live in a manner that's worthy of our calling. A side note, I'm generally not big on memes, but I saw one last week that I thought was worth the time. It said, just because you're angry, it doesn't mean you're right. <laughs> That's worth remembering. Every once in a while, the internet surprises me. Uh, so verse 3, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep or to guard the unity of the Spirit. Uh, you know, if all of us were living, as Paul had described in verse 2, that would be a piece of cake, right? We would love being around each other. It would be easy. Unfortunately, uh, we sort of tend to count that unity as a small thing. Uh, you know, people come to a church and, um, and problems happen, and then they just ghost the church, right? They vanish. They're like, yep. Oh, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm moving on. Or sometimes people are looking for a church, and they're really not looking for a place to make a commitment. They really just sort of want to hook up, right? So let's see. Uh, here's a church. Swipe right. Search for me, right? Uh, and and then as soon as it begins to get a little bit deep, they're like, nah, I got to go. This is not. I, I need some place where I can just sort of quietly be myself. Uh, that sort of attitude is corrosive to the body of Christ. Uh, the idea of unity when people are living that way, uh, it's a slogan, but it's not a reality of life. And so uh, we really do have to be intentional about keeping or guarding this unity. Uh, you know, if, if there are places in our church where there is no peace, you know, that's where things like humility and gentleness, patience, and bearing with each other uh, are critically important if we want to make peace instead of just walk out the door angry, uh, we need to pursue it. Paul goes on in verses 4 through 6. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then you tell me, you know, what, what you're hearing, what sticks out to you. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. What do you think? What start, stood out? One! I heard that too. I'm so glad we're on the same page. This is awesome. It worked out. Uh, you know, the Christian faith has a, a handful of different traditions. There are a whole bunch of different denominations around us. There are different associations. Different opinions about things that the church does. How do we baptize? When do we take communion? All sorts of things. And even within our own church, there are different, you know, groups of people ministering. Uh, there are different affinity groups. There are different squads. You know, people collect in different places. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you end up in a silo 
if you're in a place where, for you, the body of Christ consists of three other people, something's wrong, right? The church is so much bigger than that. We need to find a way to reach outside of our silos and be connected to people out of our immediate small context. When I was a still a fairly new Christian, uh, you know, I realized that I, I sort of had my squad in my church, but I knew that there was more that the church had to offer me, and so I decided to volunteer for the children's ministry. And in that church, it was called Awana. It's sort of like uh, Christian Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. And Awana was great. I learned a lot of things. I learned that uh, Christian kids, when they get together and play games, get smelly and sweaty and noisy. That was awesome. I, I also met a whole group of new people that I'd never really gotten acquainted with in church. Uh, the, the church was enlarged for me. It meant more to me because the number of relationships that I had in the church were expanding. Now, I'm not saying that we, we all need to try to be friends with everybody. I mean, that's impossible, right? Uh, but you can enlarge your circle of acquaintances, right? There are ways to do that, to reach beyond where you are. And so my second point is this. We were given unity when we started following Jesus, uh, we need to be intentional in guarding that. Is this something we'll fight for? Will we even fight against our own inclination to avoid it? Right? That's an important question. So the first point, we can only live out our identity and the power of the Holy Spirit. Second point, we need to intentionally guard the unity of the body. Now Paul moves on from talking about unity to talking about diversity. In verse 7 he says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And in verse 8, that Jesus gave gifts to his people. And this is one of those things, if you're a people, if you're a person that um, is really worried about fairness, this will rub you the wrong way. Because I'm, Jesus, he's like, okay, I'm not treating everybody the same. This person I'm giving this gift, that person I'm giving that gift. And sometimes we look around, we're like, Lord, it's not fair. Uh, you know, he's allowed to do that. Uh, the thing that we need to focus on as individuals is our own faithfulness. What are you doing with the things that you've been given? They're obviously important. Jesus values them. He gave them to you, right? And so we need to consider the value of these gifts. As Paul goes on uh, in verse 11, he talks about five different areas of gifting that are important to the establishing of the church. And... Um, and these areas enable people to establish churches, to win people to faith in Christ, to build their faith, and to care for them as they grow. Sometimes this is known as an apest ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And if you're following along in, in Scripture, you'll see that um, it, doesn't, it says pastors. It doesn't say shepherd. And I'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, but the word that's used there can quite properly be translated shepherds. And so the work of these people is foundational to the church, right? Apostles are people that are sent out to establish and lead churches. Prophets, uh, these are people that are gifted at expositing the divine truth. Really, nobody wants these people around. They're so annoying, right? They, you're going to be going along and here comes a person with a prophetic gift and they're, they're going to be like, you know, I see how you're living your life, and I see what's in the Word of God. These two don't match up. What's going on? 
Nobody wants that, right? It's uncomfortable. It's, ah, I'm just living my life. Leave me alone. Uh, but if we're going to grow in maturity in Christ, we need for people with that prophetic voice to speak into our lives and help us uh, get right, become aligned with Scripture. It's important. And if it's any consolation to you, people with a prophetic gift uh, typically are harder on themselves than anybody else. It may not make you feel better, but it's still true. Uh, evangelists, uh, we're all called to be engaged in the work of evangelism. If you are a follower of Christ, he calls you to be, to be involved in that work. But some people are gifted at it. And so I have a friend, you know, in campus ministry, and last fall he was sharing with three people on a campus, and all three of them prayed to receive Christ together. What? And then a month later, the same thing happened again with three different people. What? Come on, Jesus. I've shared my faith. That never happened. And Jesus is like, eh, he has the gift. All right. I praise God for people that have that gift. We all have the responsibility. Some people are gifted. And then teachers, people that are competent in teaching the word of God. So all of this helps to establish the church and to, um, to help it to grow, to help us to be the church that God is calling us to be. Now, these are not the only gifts. Uh, these are just um, five gifts that Paul mentions here that are related to the growth of the church. Uh, in Scripture, there are a lot of other gifts mentioned, uh, just a side note. So then, why does the Lord give these gifts? In verse 12, Paul says, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The Lord has given each follower of Christ some type of gifting. Regardless of the type of gift, the gift isn't for the benefit of the individual that has it. It's for the benefit of the people around you. And so in that regard, it's sort of like a breath mint, right? You, when you take a breath mint, you're not worried about nutrition facts. You're not checking the box to see how much fiber is in a breath mint. You're popping it in for the people around you. They gain the benefit. Spiritual gifts are the breath mints of our faith, right? They're for the benefit of the people around us. The best way to discover your gifting, I think, is serving. Now, there are a variety of spiritual gifts tests. Uh, they can vary quite a bit. Some of them are super-duper long, and they have a lot of gifts, and you're like, the gift of discerning gluten, is that even a gift? I don't know. Uh, I think that serving is a great way to find out what your gifting is. And so, um, you know, yet another story from my life. And, you know, I tell these stories, that, again, it's not that I've done anything great. It's just I've been fortunate. Jesus, you know, as I've followed him, he's been involved in my life. And so these are really stories about what God has done. Um, and so uh, this church that I was going to when I first became a believer, they had a college and career Sunday school class. And I attended this class, and the guy that led it was a guy named Dan Estes, who's absolutely brilliant. He got his PhD from Oxford, and his dissertation was on the Psalms. He was super-duper smart. And he was also a terrific teacher. These classes were so much fun. They were really creative and inventive. It's like, wow. And so about six months after I started attending this class, uh, Dan announced that he was stepping down from it. He, uh, for some you know reasons, he was moving to a different area of ministry. And I was like, man, that's a bummer. Who's going to replace Dan? Who could replace Dan? Uh, well, a couple days later, 
associate pastor of this church, Bill Montgomery, uh, comes up to me after service and he says, hey, Russ, uh, I was thinking you ought to be the new leader of the college and career class. <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. Dan, you've seen Dan. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not doing it. And he said, well, just stop by my office later this week. All right, whenever a pastor says that, it's a trap. I want you to know that. So later in the week, I go to Bill's office, and we're talking, and he's like, look, I hear what you're saying, but what you need to know is that several people in our church have seen you, and they think that you have a gift for teaching. And you, I think you ought to take a step of faith here. I, I think you ought to do this. And, you know, the darn guy tricked me. He told me something that seemed true and right. And I'm like, oh. All right, so yes, I will go ahead and do it. Felt totally inadequate. Uh, and, and I led that class for a year and a half. It was one of the best ministry experiences I've ever had. It was, it was incredible. I, I grew so much in my knowledge of scripture. I, um, I so richly enjoyed being with those people. We had such a great time together. I was no Dan Estes, but I didn't need to be, right? The church didn't need a clone of Dan, or I guess God would have plopped one down, right? Um, the church just needed somebody with the gift to be available to do what needed to be done. And so, um, you know, Bill took a chance on me, and I said yes, and what do you know, it worked out. So praise God. So I think that serving is a great way to discover your gifting. Sometimes we don't see our own gifting. It's hard for us to see it, but other people can. And so as we're serving in church, they might tell us about it. And then uh, we come to... Uh, verses 14 to 16, the end of this section. And Paul gives us a word of warning about remaining immature in our faith. That if the apests are not active in the church, teaching truth, helping us to apply truth, and shepherding, we can easily be led astray, believing things that just aren't true. And, you know, in, in this section of scripture that, uh, that was read earlier, he said, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning, cunning and craftiness. Uh, I think that if Paul was living today, here I think he would have actually referenced a cat video. You know what I'm talking about? Those cat videos where somebody has a laser pointer and are wiggling around and the cat's going crazy trying to catch that laser beam? Uh, but there's nothing to catch, right? Uh, I, think, I think this is sort of the picture that Paul's painting. That, that we could be like that crazy cat chasing nonsense if we're not growing in our understanding of God's word and how to apply it to our lives. We need to continue to grow so that we can be discerning, so that we can be led by the Lord. Otherwise, we end up like a cat in a video, which those cats are so super-duper cute, but I don't want to be one, right? <clears throat> Paul also talks about the importance of speaking the truth in love. You know, in an immature place, in an immature church, oftentimes people just avoid speaking the truth. It can be uncomfortable, it can be painful, it might hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, I, I, just, I just can't do that. I, can't, I know I ought to say something, but I just don't think I will. Uh, that's immaturity, right? We need to mature. We need to be able to speak the truth in love. Also, uh, sometimes the truth can be used uh, as a weapon or to manipulate people, right, to harm people. There's a, a discussion going on, a disagreement, and out of the blue one person says, well, your feet smell. <laughs> and the other person's like, uh, you could have told me that in a different context, 
right? A statement like that, uh, though it might be true, uh, it's really meant to humiliate the other person so that one person can win an argument. Uh, that's immaturity. The truth can be misused. And so we, uh, we want to mature as a body so the truth is spoken. Uh, we need the prophets and teachers to do their work so that we continue to grow in this way. And then he talks about the supporting ligaments, that for the whole, for the body to be whole, we each need to be engaged in using our gifting. What are the ligaments, right? We need, each need to be doing our work of supporting the body. There aren't any spare Christians, right? Jesus didn't, didn't call any of us and say, all right, everybody else is going to be busy. You just sit down. Sometimes there are periods of waiting on the Lord, but that doesn't mean we don't have gifting. It doesn't mean we can't use it. Every part has to do its work. We all need to surrender our ego and our insecurity to Christ so that we can, so that we can uh, employ our gifts for the benefit of the church. We're never important to do what we're called to do, whether it's washing dishes or sharing the gospel, right? So the third point is that we need to remember that our work is just a small piece of a really, really big puzzle. The Lord is using our little bit to accomplish his ultimate purpose, the complete maturity of the body of Christ. I expect in my lifetime I will never see that actually happen. Right? I'm probably going to leave this world before it does. It doesn't mean that me using my gifts isn't important. The Lord is honored and glorified by my faithfulness. Even when I'm not feeling it. right? Sometimes you... Uh, you're working in your gifting, you're doing what you've been called to do, it can feel like drudgery. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean you should bail. Faithfulness is important too. So we need to trust the Lord to use our gifts even when things get tough. Now, if you're interested in finding out more about the book of the Ephesians, there's a guy named Watchman Nee who wrote a, a little book. It's not too big, it's a little book. And it's called Sit, Walk, Stand. Isn't that a nice title? It's very succinct. Watch him and knee, sit, walk, stand. So you might want to check that out if you want to know more. The first point, our identity in Christ is critical, and we need to live that out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Second point, we need to intentionally guard the unity of the body. And the third point, for the body of Christ to continue to mature, we each need to be faithful to use our gifts for the church. It mattered for MLK to use his gifts, right? It matters for me. It matters for you too. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you, Lord, that you indeed are with us, not just present. You are present here, but, Lord, you're on our side. Lord, you've done so, so much for us, blessed us in ways that we can't even fully comprehend. And we know, Lord, that we are totally undeserving. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit who is in us and who empowers us to live as you created us to live. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you, you don't simply rescue us and walk away, but you continue to work in our lives. Holy Spirit, please, please be at work in our hearts. Convict us of our sin. Help us to be the men and women that we're called to be. Amen.